Hello and welcome to the TechMap podcast. In this episode, we're looking at consumer neuroscience. I've invited Mev Bertrand from research agency NeuroInsight to come and tell us all about steady state topography and how that can be used as a way for advertisers and media owners to optimize marketing communications. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Mev, good morning. Welcome to the TechMap podcast. How are you on this very sunny morning? I'm very well, thank you. It is very sunny indeed. It's beautiful today, isn't it? Yeah. Thanks so much again for speaking at the TechMap meetup that you um, were joined us at about two or three weeks ago now. And you joined us to talk all about consumer neuroscience or how, as marketeers, we can understand the human condition by using neuroscience techniques. And so I felt you only had about 10 minutes to talk through your topic area. So I thought, why not get Mev back onto the TechMap podcast and give you a little bit more time to tell us in more detail who you are and what you're up to and some of those case studies that you shared. So why don't you kick off just by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about uh, what you do and, and who you work for. Right. Well, I basically I head up the research function at NeuroInsights. Uh, my background is in psychology, so I've done I've done some work in, in psychology, but also mainly in branding. I am actually from Montreal, Canada, so I've done work in North America and in the UK before joining NeuroInsights, and I've been at NeuroInsights for almost four years now. Excellent. A NeuroInsight has a very specific type of neuroscience that um, it uses. Is that solid state topography, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's well, it's it's a unique technology and it's actually patented. So we're the only company in the world that can use it. Um, so basically, steady state topography is 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 different from your regular um, EEG methodology uh, because it uses an extra element. So maybe I should talk through a little bit about sort of the the, the similarities and then I'll talk through the differences. Yeah, that sounds good. So similar, in, similar to EEG, we've got a headset that people are wearing with some sensors that pick up electrical activity in different parts of the brain. Now, the part that's different is that people also wear a visor. Um, and the visor does something very specific. It triggers a tiny flickering light at the corner of the eye. And the whole point of this is it's not preventing people from sort of watching something or, or, or doing anything. But it, it engenders sort of a, a reflex reaction in the brain, which is a signal to a very strong, sort of very strong frequency and very easy to track frequency. So we're, what we're actually doing is we're tracking the speed of the signal in different parts of the brain because we know from other research that depending on how active a part of the brain is at a specific point in time, this particular signal travels slower or faster. So basically if a part of the brain is active, this signal travels quite fast. If it's not active, there's like a, sort of an impedance effect and the, the signal travels slower. So by measuring the speed of the signal in different parts of the brain, we can identify whether part of the brain is more or less active at a specific point in time. And that activity suggests what, engagement or interest? or The activity suggests that this particular part of the brain is doing something. Now, obviously, we measure um, electrical activity in, in five main different parts of the brain that are responsible for five different cognitive processes. So um, the first, um, the first and most important thing that we would measure is something we call long-term memory encoding. Um, memory encoding is basically whether the brain is filing something away literally for pretty much forever. As, as, as When something has gone into the brain through that process, it's sort of there forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will consciously always think about it, but it's somewhere 
in there and it can be sort of triggered or, or brought back into to, to memory, okay. conscious memory at any point. And it's an extremely important measure because uh, it correlates with subsequent behavior and uh, decision making. That that correlation has been um, demonstrated through again through a lot of research. The the reason why it correlates it's not sort of because memory causes behavior. It's sort of the other way around. It's because um, the brain only files the information into memory that it deems potential useful for for the potentially useful for the future. So when something has gone into memory, then it's possible for people to act on it. But if it's not gone into memory, then it's impossible for people to act on it because it's just not there. It's not in, it's not in the brain. So so that's that's why we usually look at memory encoding for, to look at uh, advertising effectiveness, for example, because. It tells us if, for example, the key messages of an advertising have gone into memory, then it's a lot more likely they're going to have an impact on behavior than they, if they haven't gone into memory. I see. Okay. So if we're storing that information, it means we've responded to the message. We've kept it where well, we've heard it and we've stored it in our brain so that we can draw upon that. So we've found it interesting or engaging or something about that has made us want yeah, to Yeah, subconsciously the brain thought this is something I might need one day uh-huh. and therefore I decided to store it. Yeah. Excellent. So it's steady state. I called it solid state. So my mistake there. Steady state topography. I didn't yeah. realize that you were the the only company able to do this. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a few. There's a few key things about steady state topography that make it particularly um, well suited for market research. Um, because the, the signal I was talking about, the fact that we are measuring the speed of a specific signal in different parts of the brain, basically allows us to uh, from the first try out for the first from the first reading screen out a lot of the inf- uh, usual interference or noise in the data that other methodology might be sort of gathering along the way and so what ends up happening is we are able to do studies in, in environments that are really natural we don't need to be in a lab we also don't need to take multiple readings of a, a, a single person doing the same thing over and over again for example in if uh, people using eg or using eg it's something that uh, we need to do or people would need to do because there is so much noise in the data that um, there needs to be several readings taken of the same thing or the same person doing the same thing to make sure that we screen out all the noise in the data. Now, um, for market research, it would be quite difficult for, for, for A, for respondents, I think, to watch the same television ad eight times an hour without getting very bored, but also, you know, as a consequence of that, if people, if they had to watch this eight times in a row, they wouldn't necessarily respond to it very naturally, um, you know, after the mm. eighth time. So, so steady state topography is particularly well suited for market research in that respect. I think that's interesting. So, of course, as you watch an advert multiple times, your your response to it will change each time, won't it? Of course, so, yeah. yeah. And eventually it will, be, it will get a lot lower, you know, uh, because you get very much used to watching the same thing over and over again. So you won't get the similar, the, 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 the same level of brain response that you would get just in a normal context or on the first time you're watching something. So, Mev, how does steady state topography fit in with the other consumer neuroscience techniques that are available for advertisers or marketeers? Well, so, well, the first thing I think probably to mention is that steady state topography is a, is a neuro science methodology and something it's a distinction that actually not that many people make, um, you know, within the bigger field of biometrics, which sort of, uh, you know, encompass uh, implicit testing and, and other methodologies that, that measure bodily reactions. 
um, there is within that the field of neuroscience, and that this is these are basically methodologies that focus on brain response. So that's probably the first distinction to make. So steady-state topography is a, is a methodology; it's a biometric, but precisely that focuses on on brain response. Mm. So it's it's a neuroscience methodology, and then within that there are there are you know, sort of mainly three uh, methodologies. So there's fMRI, which is um, basically putting people into a very big machine um, that can read quite deep um, in, into the brain what, what is actually going on. The problem with fMRI is that because it measures something quite it measures blood flow and blood flows slightly more slowly than, for example, um, electrical activity, which is what we measure and what EEG measures. And so what you end up getting is a very detailed 3D picture of what's going on in the brain. We don't quite know when something happened. I mean, it's not super slow. It's, it's something you know, along the lines of, of you know, one to two seconds. Um, every one or two seconds, you will get a, a, a 3D picture of what's going on in the brain. But it is problematic for things like TV advertising or any kind of sort of non-static communication because quite a lot can actually happen in two seconds mm. that can impact how people will respond to something. So that's for, for, for fMRI. Then there's two other methodologies that, um, that measure um, electrical activity in the brain. Um, the most commonly used is, the, uh, is um, EEG, which is used in hospitals as well. But what we have on your inside is what we call steady state topography, and it's sort of improvement, so so to speak, on on EEG for for market research in particular. Right. It feels much more of an accessible neuroscience technique than in terms of availabilities of use, and I'm I'm sure that means it's easier to build a panel when you're looking to 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 create a research study. So who's um, who's using this? I know you shared some case studies at the TechMap meetup. I think you shared um, the bird's eye case study. Tell me a little bit about that or explain, expand upon that, please, Matt. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd, I'd say half of our half of the people that come to us are, are brand owners that want to understand how their uh, marketing communication um, is is working from a brain perspective. So we look at all sorts of things. We look a lot at, at television advertising, but we look also at press ad um, and at posters. But there's another 50%, I think, of our, of, our, of our business, basically, that comes from media owners. So people that want to understand how a specific um, media is working. So how does, so we did, we did for example, um, a, a lot of, Few few research projects for Twitter, so they wanted to understand exactly what it what it was that was so different. You know, when people um, look at something on a on a on a Twitter account, than when they're looking at a similar content on other platforms. Interesting. So, so to look at the differences and how how media themselves work, or we did some work for 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 Ocean Outdoor, looking at the differences between really big you know iconic poster sites and a more common poster sites to see if there was anything that was actually different from a brain perspective. So things like that. Or are, are there any results from those two studies that you can share, or is that all uh, um, customer yeah, confidential? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, both of them have have been published. Some uh, the the Twitter study. The, the key thing basically is the high level of, of relevance response. So how relevant the content is to people. Obviously, because of their own timeline, it's things that they have chosen, and that actually activates a, a part of the brain that's related to what we call engagement and in, in, um, sort of newer terms. But it's literally a sense of personal relevance. Mm. And that's quite important because the more relevant something is to somebody, the more likely that the brain is going to file it away into memory, obviously, because it's going to be sort of part of the subconscious selection process, right? So is that, is that relevant to me? Might I need this in future? And obviously, we know that if something has been filed away into memory, it's more likely that people are going to act on it. 
So it, that has implications for um, people that want to advertise on Twitter, for example, because we know that what's going to be seen on people's timeline is more likely to trigger strong sense of relevance response and therefore to be more strongly encoded into memory. So I, I guess that that makes common sense, really, in terms of the more relevant an advert is to your target audience, the more likely they are to respond to that. But what you're saying exactly. is that because in Twitter you're looking at it in your in your newsfeed, in your stream, exactly. you've already chosen to follow those people, so it makes more sense. It's more relevant within the context of what you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, exactly, the context. In. So not just the content, but the context mm, in which people okay. will see it will, will have an impact on relevance. Yeah. That's really interesting. And then the work you did for Ocean Outdoor. So what, uh, what did you conclude there in terms of the, the response from the different formats of outdoor? Yeah, well, that that was a really interesting one. It, that that had to do with the um, sort of the the strength of the emotional response, sort of triggered by big iconic sites such as sort of the IMAX. You know, the the there's an IMAX near what the IMAX um, near Waterloo, which basically has you can put advertising all around it. I know, yes, so it's, it's, it. it's yeah. extraordinary, sort of an extraordinary sight to see. And we looked at these kind of sites versus the more usual sites and what we found is that you know the bigger the more impressive sites trigger a much stronger level of emotional intensity a much stronger emotion and this in turn also helps the brain file things that went to memory the link between emotion and memory sort of has been developed through the history of the humankind basically it's, it's through evolution that there is a link between emotional intensity and memory has been uh, have been established what basically happens is that and it's the same for animals actually so you know when we were closer to animals or in sort of more dangerous environments a long time ago highly emotional events tended tended to be linked to our survival and so for example encountering a predator triggered quite a strong emotional response uh, but then it turned out we needed to remember those events in order to survive them in the future and so there's a very strong connection that's been established between the strength of the emotional response and memory encoding and of course nowadays we don't very often encounter predators or anything like that but it's quite a primitive mechanism and it still remains today and so this is why most of more, more often than not if you think about something quite emotional that happened to you or a quite emotional big event usually uh, people can remember more detail about it than the usual event simply because the strong emotion told the brain remember everything about this it's very important interesting so so perhaps while you can recall quite a lot about a wedding even after a few drinks yep. you can still remember most <laughs> exactly. of the wedding yeah yep. okay interesting again there's a little bit of common sense in there as well you've proven that if a site is more interesting and engaging then it's likely to drive a greater emotional response and therefore enable you to recall it better so as an advertiser looking at your outdoor locations you know, if you're looking for high impact, look for those sites that have something about them that is memorable, like exactly. the IMAX in in Waterloo, which is um, yeah, which is quite a sight as you're driving over Waterloo Bridge there towards the IMAX, and it's it's got a campaign on there. You can you can certainly see it and recall it. Interesting. Talking about then the bird's eye case, because you showed us that ad text for so I think it was a fish finger product as an advert yeah. campaign you ran in, in Australia. Fish, yeah. yeah, that's right. So how did what did you do there, and and what were the what what was the impact of that study? What we looked at basically, we we were approached. Um, it's an Australian team actually that was approached by Bird's Eye because they they had an ad uh, that wasn't performing particularly well in the marketplace, and so what we so they've asked us to look at it from a brain perspective and try to identify what was going on, and so we we looked at the ad and measured brain response to it, and then looked at memory encoding, obviously just to see which were the part of the ad that were gonna 
have an impact or that had been encoded and were, were more likely to have an impact on future behavior. And what we found is that there were two what we called sort of missed opportunities, two moments where memory encoding was very high, but it, they had what was shown on screen instead had nothing to do with the brand. So the first moment was close to the opening scene where the camera zoomed closer to the main character um, who started speaking about you know, the ocean and all of those things. Now, that uh, particular introduction scene was associated with a strong level of memory encoding. That's usually the case for introduction scenes because the brain is working uh, relatively hard to establish the context. What am I watching? And so the memory encoding tends to be high at those points. So this um, sometimes it's a quite a good point uh, in, in an ad to introduce a key branding message or, or a hook that will give a cue to what, what you know the brand is. But in this particular case, it had nothing to do with simply this character talking about this, the Pacific Ocean. Um, and then the second um, moment in the ad, which was also associated with very strong level of memory encoding, but had not, again, what was being said and shown had nothing to do with the brand, was a very specific pause in the middle of the ad. It was sort of, from, from a creative perspective, it, it was um, uh, the music stopped and the images stopped, and it, create quite a, it created quite a good sense of tension. Um, you know, sudden silences and pauses tend to do that. If I all of a sudden stop talking, you will probably wonder what I'm going to say next. Mm. So um, it similarly did that in this particular ad. So the brain, uh, again, you know, wonders what it's going, what's going to happen next. It creates a sense of anticipation and memory encoding rises because the brain is preparing to, to, to encode what's going to happen. But in this case, what ended up being encoded was something completely, again, unrelated to the branding, Some, just a, a simple line of, of dialogue that the character was, was, was saying at the time. So what we suggested basically was three three um, minor edits we suggested to re-record the voiceover basically and then to to make sure that the something about the brand was going to be said relatively quickly after the beginning of the ad at that point where memory encoding was high because the brain is trying to work out the context and the second suggestion we we made was to we make a very good use of this moment of tension as and and pause to include again something to do with either the brand or the product. So what they ended up doing is mentioning the brand al alongside uh, visuals of, of fish because it's bird's eye um, fish. Uh, and the third thing that we um, suggested is to highlight the unbranding moment for, for which memory encoding was um, actually um, relatively good, but we thought there's no harm in strengthening it. Mm. So to highlight it with a bit of a different color to make it a bit more prominent. And what and then, was the what was the impact yeah. of those? Because they sound like quite subtle changes, but I know that you showed you know it had quite a dramatic impact on campaign performance. Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, so the client actually came back to us with their own their own figures, and and it turns out that um, you know, with that second campaign that was done on half, I think, the media spend of the year prior to that, brand linkage um, went up from eight percent to forty four percent, purchase intent from twenty three to fifty one percent, and market share up from forty seven to fifty four percent. So, yeah, very sort of dramatic and, um, uh, impact of, of tiny changes in the edit just to make it work from a brain, brain so, perspective. So, so they're huge numbers and huge performance improvements, aren't they? And I know uh, it, it's those subtle changes. So we had Will Nicholson talking about, uh, from the Vision Network, talking about eye tracking and how they'd made some subtle changes to digital campaigns using eye tracking mm -hmm. um, studies that had made... Uh, a big impact or a big difference as well. So it sometimes is those small tweaks to great creative that makes the difference. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And that's sort of what, part of what we're here for anyway. That's yeah. sure. And then you looked at, I know that uh, Volvo isn't a client of yours, but you looked at the epic split campaign with Jean-Claude Van Damme and did a bit of analysis around that as well. What did you find looking at that campaign? Because obviously that's, that won quite a few creative awards, I think, didn't it? Yeah, so what we what we did actually with the Volvo Epic Split campaign is we actually looked at it before the recent hype. So we looked at it uh, last year. It had already won um, a creative award, but it hadn't won the, the rest of the awards yet. But we looked at it because we were interested in, you know, potentially to see how effective it was, was going to be being that creative. And we found a number of things. But the, the key thing was that one of the strongest most most strongly encoded moment was actually the point where the the branding message was on screen with the two Volvo trucks and the Volvo brand. So again, look, you know, thinking back at how 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 a memory encoding has a chance to impact behavior. Thinking, well, if actually, if one of the thing, the key things that the brand has picked up from this ad is the brand message and the Volvo brand, it's very likely that this particular moment will have an impact on future behavior. And therefore, the side is probably very likely to be effective in the marketplace. So it was no surprise to us, actually, when it won the 2015 Cannes Creative Effectiveness Grand Prix this year. Um, and, and it's simply sort of another another demonstration that, um, you know, memory encoding is, is interesting because it's both predictive and diagnostic. It can tell you whether, you know, something's going to be effective but as we saw with the bird's eye case study, we can also make a diagnostic and, and, and tweak things to make things um, even better. So from a brand perspective, it almost sounds like a bit of a no brainer. You know, it, it, if you're investing in ad creative. Yes, intended, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry about the terrible pun. But to, to actually employ some steady state topography research to test out some creative before it goes into the marketplace it, it, it's, it, it's surely quite a simple decision to make. Yes, we think so. Um, I mean, <laughs> but of course, you would say that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it, I mean, it absolutely is. And and you know, um, just thinking about um, how 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 much things can change just from making tweaks at that mm. sort of final editing stage. And this is, you know, we have a lot of advertisers, of course, that you know, they come to us once for a trial and then they come back because they realize how effective it is by you know, and 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 how how useful as well because they don't have to redo the whole ad the whole you know the point of what we're trying to do is not um giving people a pass or fail verdict like oh you use this or don't use this but but we try um, and then the key thing we do is to help creatives and, and brand owners just do small changes or make small changes um you know at relatively low cost things they might do anyway because they often re-edit at the last minute after mm. um you know having received comments from various people in the organization so just to do that and to use us within that process to, to, to make a few changes that make, might have a massive impact in the marketplace. Do you think that there's an application with this technique or these techniques within digital marketing? So, for example, within if you are uh, if you own a large media property online, let's say for sake of argument, the mail online, and you want to look at how can you optimize the effectiveness of your client's campaign to prove ROI, could you use steady state topography as a way to analyze the impact or the effectiveness of the advertising positions and your inventory within your site and, and use that as a way to optimize that yeah we can do that um and we have done work with with uh, websites um i think that kind of key point to, to keep in mind when doing this is 
that because usually, for example, when, when people develop a website or a whole user interface, it's a bit tricky because there are so many permutations. And obviously, to, to you know, for any kind of for this particular um, research, um, we we use a quant methodology. So our minimum cell size is 50 people, and so obviously they can see all all kinds of things. But if you have too many permutations of 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 something to get to and 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 to be able to isolate the factors that have an impact, um, we would have to have a massively large sample. Mm. So I would say for online, it's more. Um, it would be more useful if uh, it's something to do about, you know, which or yes, which kind of, you know, which position um, is this ad more effective in? Then we can do that very easily because we're comparing like for like, so it's not too too much of a big too too much of a demand on on you know how many people we're going to use to identify that. So I would say it depends on the number of variables that people want mm. to look at. Okay. And, and and I guess the, the third thing that comes off the back of that is obviously it seems to me as though there's a, there's a clear opportunity here for advertisers or brand owners, media owners to to use this these techniques. But what's preventing people? What's stopping people from taking this on and giving this a go? Um, well, the more and more are taking this on and giving this a go, and we are growing. But um, <laughs> I think uh, I think in just a general sense, well, I think there's two things. You know, one is simply sort of a little bit of a fear of the unknown, although that is has changed massively just within the past three years. I think um, you know before people just didn't even know anything about neuroscience. Now it's, it's sort of it's, it's a lot more common that people. Will, well, I have tried it or definitely know about it and know people that have tried it and everything. So the fear factor is a little bit there, but I think probably the thing that is uh, the biggest obstacle is usually companies are already sort of tied to other methodologies um, with which they have worked for many, many years and um, that provide them with sort of benchmarks and things that to compare their current advertising to. And that's something that's difficult for them to let go of or can be difficult for them to let, to let go of. I see. So they've made investments already in other techniques that uh, that have proven mm-hmm. valuable. And, and, of course, they've built their benchmarks and models and frameworks exactly. on it's, the back it's of not, not, I wouldn't say even so mm-hmm. much the investments than the benchmark can be. It's the things they can compare with their advertising to because they've used that other methodology for, for such a long time. Got you. Okay. So what does the future look like, not just for steady state, but also for other forms of neuroscience? Do you think that, you know, it has in the last few years seemingly become much more widespread? Certainly it's talked a, a, about a lot more in the advertising press, for example. Um, what does that future look like from your perspective? I think that what is going to happen, and it's something that we hoped would happen, but I think it's looking now very likely that it will, it will become a, a, a sort of a field of market research in its own right, um, and probably become, you know, I think hopefully, and, and it's like it's going to become a key, a key element, something that people can't really omit from a, a, a market research project um, at the moment. It's sort of divided between, you know, qual and quant. But I think there will be the the whole biometrics, actually, not just neuroscience, but a whole biometrics field of neuro of, of market research is going to be something like the third the third dimension, I think, of market research. I mean, I said that and there's big data and there's all kinds of other things, but it, it probably will become one of the key things that people can't ignore when thinking about doing research about specific things. Got you. 
So Qual, Quant and Bio are the three strands of market research. Well, I say that from my perspective with <laughs> the kind of work that we do, but I think probably as well, as, as you said, there is, a, 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 you know, there's big data, there's other, um, you know, other fields as well. But I think it will become a key pillar, definitely a key pillar of market research. Well, let's hope so. It sounds as though with some of the work that you've been doing, you've proven the value of this technique uh, and your clients are enjoying successes on the back of what you're able to help them with. I think the bird's eye story uh, and case study is really really interesting could you tell our listeners where they can find out more about these case studies and where they can find out more about you uh, online yeah well i mean obviously there's there's a website so it's simply neuroinsight neuro-insight.com um and uh, on on there there's uh, articles and everything we've done recently uh they can also follow us on twitter it's at neuroinsight and and then again we, we we tend to publish articles and and things that we've been involved in. Uh, another thing to possibly uh, have a look at, just for a wider understanding of uh, neuroscience, is the NSMBA website. To to just have an uh, a, sometimes you want to get a bigger understanding of what where 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 neuroscience sort of fits in within the the bigger um, landscape of of marketing, and that's quite a good one to to look at. Brilliant. Mev, thanks so much for joining us and taking us through in a little bit more detail what you've been up to with uh, consumer neuroscience and in particular the steady state topography stuff there. It's, I think that the work you've been doing is really, really interesting. And I know that when you showed the visuals at TechMap, and obviously this is an audio show, so we can't show visuals, but I'll put links to your video in the show notes so people can actually uh, watch the videos that you uh, that you had tested and optimized there. I think it's great. Really, really interesting. And thank you again for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. It was lovely.